they're calling me on the phone, the medical community, my doctor and other people, and saying, hey, we really think that you need to get on medicine. We think you need to start that medicine right now before this thing gets worse. And so they handed me this pamphlet. I don't remember the name. And the easy answer to the question of whether or not I was going to take the medicine was yes. The doctors were telling me to do it. They were telling me it was the only way that I was not going to get worse and worse and worse and experience this tingling and, and this inability to run and jump for the rest of my life. And, and so the easy answer for me was just to say yes. But then I started to read the pamphlet. The first thing that really concerned me was the three shots a week. They had to hold me down when I was a child in order to stick a needle into me. Couldn't do it in my arm. They had to do it somewhere else. And so, yeah, the thought of three times a week for the rest of my life didn't sound very good to me. And then I opened up the packet a little bit further. I got past that and said, well, maybe I could handle it. I could make Bryn do it um, or whatever. And, and so I, I started to look through this packet more and it started to, to list the the side effects that may come along with it. And the side effects sounded much worse than the tingling that I was experiencing. And so I started to wrestle in my own head with the question of whether or not I I should take this medicine. Now, I remember being down in California and uh, and I was on the phone with a family member. I was down there for school and and they said they said, "Hey, I really think you need to do this. This is what the doctor is saying and and it just makes sense." But somewhere something inside of me, maybe it was the shots, was saying, "No, I, I don't think that's a, a good decision." You know, in, in those moments, especially looking back, it would have been so valuable if I could have just said, "Hey, God, should I take the medicine?" Or should I not take the medicine? And God would have said to me, yes or no. It would have been just a a far easier experience. It would have taken the pressure of what the family was saying to me, what the medical community was saying to me, and it would have removed all of that and just given me the right answer without having to think. There's lots of uh, decisions like this in life. The USA Today says that we make 25,000 decisions in a single day. Right? And some of those are easy to make. I mean, some of those we, we just know what we should do. But others of those are, are more difficult. And I, I have some objects. I have a dusty briefcase that hasn't been used in a long time. Sometimes when trying to decide what work we should do, what job we should take, uh, we wish that we could seek God's advice and that God would give us a clear answer. We have just recently had a couple of men, at least three actually, at least three that I know of in our congregation that have come to positions where, where it was like, do I take this job or do I not take this job? What is it that I'm supposed to do? I'm comfortable, but I don't feel like this is everything. What should I do next? And, and I can tell you some of them are, are still in the middle of that, and they would love to go, hey, God, you know, where should I be taking my briefcase? And, and to have God answer. Another one, this was a big stressor for me for a long time. Should I play with dolls or not? Uh, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, it was really awkward buying this at Goodwill, um, but nice. The question of who to marry, right? I went to a Christian college, Corbin University in Salem, Oregon, and, and I, I feel like every week they said to us, the second most important decision you will make after your decision with God is who you marry. And then I'd start biting my fingernails and looking around saying, well, I don't like any of these girls. Um, what am I supposed to do? And, and, and so... They stressed this, I mean, literally like every single week, and it made me so nervous every time. And I know there are times in my life 
when I, I wished that I could have just said, hey, God, is this the one? And he would have told me no. I would have saved myself a lot of trouble. Now I have the right one, I think. But there's times when I just wish that... that <laughs> um, one more, one more. This literally uh, is the title to my home. <laughs> um, I didn't want to buy a dollhouse with my doll at Goodwill. And so I brought the title of my home. Please don't steal it. Uh, but th- there's a, a lot of papers in here. And we signed just about each and every one of these when we purchased our home. And looking back, you know, at the time, we just it seemed to make sense. But, but I'm not sure we made the right decision in buying our house because we're not as close to the church as, as I'd like to be and things like that. And, and, you know, looking back, if I could have just said, hey, God, should I sign those papers? And he would have said yes or no. I think it would have just been much, much easier. And so we have in our lives many decisions where we don't know what the right answer is. And it is a normal desire. I think a desire that most of you have experienced at one time or another in life, and probably right now in your life, to say, I just wish, people always say it like this, I just wish I could call God on the telephone and He would tell me what to do. I think God would be Skyping, but that's just me. And so, let me tell you, first of all, why that's a good desire. You might already know this, but maybe you haven't thought, why is it that I so desperately desire to know God's will in this situation? Why is it that I want God's advice here? And so let me just tell you the reasons that that I think you want God's advice. First of all, uh, the Bible says that seeking God's guidance and advice is is an important thing to do. Isaiah 8.19 says, Should not a people inquire of their God? And in the next verse it says, Consult God's instruction. So that's pretty straightforward, right? I mean, God is saying, Hey, you should be seeking my advice. That's the right thing to do. But there's other reasons, and, and maybe these will be more practical reasons for you. The second reason is that people make bad decisions. Now, show of hands, who's made a bad decision in their life? Yeah, right? Now, again, show of hands, who's made a bad decision when they thought they were making a good decision? Yeah, we all have, right? And so we run into this problem, even when the best evidence says to do one thing and it seems like the right decision, we can never know if we are making the correct decision because we all make bad decisions. The other issue is, if you turn to the person next to you and say, hey, I need advice on this, well, you just saw that they raised their hands too, and so you know that they make bad decisions. And the Bible tells us that God is a perfect being, and so therefore, He doesn't make bad decisions, and He's not going to lead you to to do the wrong thing, and so you can know, if God gives you advice, then it's going to be the right advice, not leading you to a bad decision. Third, God knows the future. Isn't our inability to know the future the problem with decisions, right? I mean, isn't that the whole trouble? I can make perfect decisions if I knew the future. If, if I knew that, uh, that buying one car was going to end up costing me thousands and thousands of dollars in repairs and, and going to have me broken down on the side of the freeway for the rest of my time with that car, and another car was going to be perfect and fast and wonderful and I would never take it to the shop, then I would probably pick the second car, right? Depending on how the first car looked. And so I would choose the second car, right? And for people that are picking a spouse, if they could just say, well, I know for a fact that if I marry this person, then we'll end up being unfaithful to each other and not like each other very much, and we're going to end up divorced. Or option B, we're going to love and be faithful, and we're going to have a great marriage with the white picket fence, and everything's going to be happy for us. Wouldn't we pick option B? 
And so the problem with decisions, I mean, this is just really the key issue, is that we don't know the future. God knows the future. And so it is better to seek his advice. It is good to seek his advice. Now, perhaps those are, are kind of the big three, right? Those are the, the ones that you might think of. But, but let me give you three more that maybe you haven't thought of before. And, and maybe I'll just talk you into, before we even get to what I really want to say, I'll talk you into seeking God's advice for decisions that you make in life. First of all, God knows our true motives. I think many a man has married someone thinking, my motivation is simply to love, cherish, and adore this woman because she has such a beautiful spirit. Their actual motivation? She's hot and I want a hot wife. Right? And many a man has ended up in a really bad marriage because they said, well, I think this is my motivation. But the real motivation was just, that girl's good looking and I, I want to walk around with her on my arm. Yeah? That, that's true. Uh, and so, when we think about our motivations... They're never that good, it doesn't seem like, right? And so if we are basing our decisions upon our motivations, then a lot of times we are going to end up doing the wrong things. Another one, God is not overwhelmed by choices. Let me just give you an example. There are 7,690 colleges in the U.S., give or take. And here's the problem. When somebody selects a college a prospective student, what do they do? They say, well, here's three that I'm going to decide from, and it's based on how good their football team is or their colors or their mascot or maybe uh, if they're bright and have great futures ahead of them, the programs that the school is offering, right? And so they take this 7,690 and they narrow it down to three or four or five choices, and then they select between those choices, but God doesn't have the limitations that prevent him from looking at all 7,690 choices and saying, here is the absolute best college for you to choose. You see, a man can marry the second best woman out of the 3.5 billion on the earth, but God could have given them the first best if they would have sought God's advice. And the third reason, and maybe this one's a little bit more obvious too, God guides us to future joy. Right? I mean, God always has our best interest in mind. Now, let's be clear about one thing. Seeking the advice of God will not, most definitely will not, lead to you having more money, more earthly success, and more popularity. However, God's advice will always lead you to what He considers the best, the most joy, the most peace, the most comfort, just the best life that you can possibly imagine. And so... I just wanted to begin with that because over the next several weeks, what we're talking about is seeking the advice of God. And I guess I felt the need to convince you that seeking the advice of God is a good thing for those six reasons. And so the big question becomes, it's probably the question that you're already thinking in your head. If it is good for us to seek the advice of God, does God actually give me advice for life's daily decisions? Does God give me advice on what job I should take? Does God give me advice on what house I should buy? Does God give me advice on who I should marry? I mean, does God actually care about those things? Or is He just giving us a Bible with a few simple rules and said, look, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't be a homosexual, and you're good? Well, when we come to that that conversation, it really does turn into a debate for many people. It becomes filled with 
philosophical and theological jargon and people start to talk about the, the will of God, which we've avoided in our, in our sermon title because of that, and people start to argue about this. Let me give you, first of all, where I have always been until studying for this sermon series. I've always been someone who said, look, I'm going to draw as close to God as I can, spend time in prayer, spend time reading the Bible, and then I will just make the decision that I deem right. I'll just do what I think is best based on my relationship with God. That's where I've always fallen on the issue. Not anymore, though. Now, on the, on the wide spectrum of it, there, there's two types of people. First of all, uh, my friend Ryan Welsh, who's a pastor at Mars Hill in Seattle. Ryan Welsh sitting at round table with me one time. We were discussing this. This is what pastors discuss at round table, I guess, when there's no good sporting events on. And, and so me and Ryan were talking about the, the will of God in our lives and how he interacts and, and how he, he teaches us what we should do and, and who we should marry and, and what job we should take and those types of things. And he said, well, Chad, I, I don't think that God forces us to make decisions. I think that he just leads us to a place where we will always make the decision. He said, look, take, take the clothes that you have on this morning. He said, I don't believe that God made you put that shirt on. He just led you through circumstances to a place in life where you would always put that same shirt on. This morning he tweeted because he knew I was going to share that example. Chad Harms is, is going to use my example in his sermon. He was predestined to do so. And so Ryan thinks that we are just really... If we could just boil it all down, we are dictated in the decisions that we make. On the other side of that, author Gerald Sitzer, who says, There is no need to sit by the telephone waiting for God to call. For some reason, we assume God has something to say about everything. I'm not sure this is the case. God may remain silent because he has nothing to say. His silence may mean little more than, Fine, you can be an accountant or a teacher, move to Orlando or stay in Chicago, marry Sam or remain single. It doesn't much matter to me. I think that both of these guys are really bright. I know that Ryan is, and uh, I think that, that their opinions are okay. But I think that both of those, both of those ideas are really lacking. First of all, Ryan's view, and Ryan knows I think this, uh, doesn't leave any room for the bad decisions that we make. Are we to say that God has predestined us? has left us only one choice to murder? Is that our only choice when somebody commits a murder? Can they just say, well, heh, you know, God didn't make me, but this is the only choice he left for me. I don't think that's how God works, right? And on the other side, when we look at Mr. Sitzer, I think that he, he just throws away a whole bunch of the Bible where God intimately relates to his people. He seems to, to just push away from the idea that God wants to have a relationship with us and not just leave us with a set of rules. And so I think both of those things miss the boat quite a bit. Now, uh, there's a different course that this debate takes. First of all, uh, the specific will of God. People talk about whether God has a, a specific will for our lives or just kind of a general will for our lives. Does God... Have in his head one person for you somewhere out there that you need to marry. And if you don't marry them, you will be sinning. And on the other side, there's people like Mr. Sitzer who say, eh, God doesn't care that much about who you married. I think both of these are wrong again because the first one just ignores biblical passages that say we have the right as Christians to choose between two separate good things. But I think the second one again ignores the relational nature of God. It throws out all of the, the ideas that God is, is just investing in our lives and cares 
about us. And so today, I want to present you with this. I do not think that God dictates our decisions, but I do think He is glad to offer us advice so that we can make good ones. I say that again, I do not think that God dictates our decisions, but I do think He is glad to offer us advice so that we can make good ones. And today my goal is to prove that to you through the Word of God. Over the next uh, three weeks after today, we will, we will examine how to find that will of God, what might prevent you from hearing uh, the, the will of God, the advice of God, and finally, how can we be sure it's, it's, it's God and not just some feeling inside of us or, or the food that we ate last night. And so, uh, so that will be uh, our goal over the next few weeks. But before we dive into this, let me talk about two things that I'm not going to talk about. I'm not talking about the universal plan of God. God has a big plan for this earth. He came to save people. He wants to bring people into relationship with Him. And He's going to come back and return and take us to live in glory with Him. And I'm not talking about that. Those things will be accomplished no matter what job you get or what house you buy or who you married. God will do those things. The other thing that I'm not talking about is sin. The Bible makes very clear that some things are wrong and some things are right. If you are sitting out there thinking, oh good, he can convince me that my sin is okay in this next three weeks because I'll just say, well, God told me to do it. Well, you're wrong. If you are thinking about robbing a bank today after church, that's weird, uh, but also I would say this, God has said in his word that stealing is bad. And so if you're going, hey God, I need to know whether or not to rob that bank you can stop asking the question because God has already answered that in the Bible. If you're thinking, God, should I get a divorce because I'm just not in love anymore? I can answer that question for you. The Bible makes it very clear, no. God, can I sleep with my girlfriend before we get married? God makes pretty clear, you cannot. That is a sin. And so we're not talking about God's universal plan, and we're not talking about sin and not sin. We're talking about the advice of God for everyday decisions. And so let's turn in, in the Word of God, and it will be coming up here. Uh, but if you have your Bible, first of all, Genesis chapter 12, 1 and 2. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, up to this point in the Bible, we know nothing about this man named Abram. You might know him as Abraham. Uh, God turns his name to Abraham later. But we don't know anything about him except for uh, a small genealogical record. And God says to him, Hey, I want you to move. I want you to go live somewhere else in the land that I am going to give you. Now, we could sit here and argue. I mean, would it have been disobedient for Abram to not go? Would that have been a sin? That's not the question. The question for me this morning is, is how much of the blessings would Abraham, Abram have missed if he wouldn't have gone? We know about Abraham later in the Word of God that God turns him into the father of the Israelite nation and really the father of all people who call themselves Christians today. And, and I think that if he would have said, well, I don't know about God's advice, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't go live over there, then God would not have blessed him in the way that God blessed him. The story about Abram and, and turning to Abraham continues, and then we come to Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. It says this, Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, 
Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living. But you will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The story continues in Genesis chapter 24, 10 through 19. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharam and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneeled, kneeled down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside the spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, Drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was a daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No one had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly she lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. Do you see this? The young man's name is Isaac. That's Abraham's son. And God doesn't say, hey, go marry somebody. I mean, it'd be wrong for you to marry somebody of this other tribe, but I want you to go marry somebody over there and good luck with that. Have fun making that decision. He looks down upon Isaac and Abraham's servant, and he says, let me give you advice about who Isaac should marry. God didn't just make a rule and say, yeah, you need to not sin in making this decision. He said, look, I care so much about you that I want to help you make the right decision. This same, this same idea just continues throughout the Bible. If you were to go to the book of Acts, and you were to read it all the way through, you would see story after story after story about God offering His advice and His guidance to His people in the early church. But let me point out two of those examples today. Acts 8, 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. If you turn your attention up uh, above me, you see the numbers 4 and 5 up there. That's the route that God tells Philip to take. Now, Philip had gone up from Jerusalem to preach the word of God because of the persecution that had come into Jerusalem. And you think that the next step for Philip would be to go back to Jerusalem, where he is from, and where the early church had started. But God says, through an angel this time, here's my advice for you. Go past Jerusalem. Go to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. The story goes like this. Philip says, okay, God, I'll follow your advice. I'll follow your guidance. And he goes down and he meets an Ethiopian man who happens to be reading the book of Isaiah about Jesus. Only the Ethiopian man doesn't know that it's Jesus. He's going, I wish that I could understand the word of God. And Philip walks up to his carriage, probably not a carriage at that time, but that's how I picture it. And he says, hey, can I explain that to you? And this Ethiopian man becomes a Christian. Why? Because Philip said, I will follow the advice of God, even though that advice doesn't make a lot of sense in this situation. And so we see it there. At the beginning of the book of Acts, 
Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, we see it again. But you need a little bit of background information. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus has just ascended into heaven, and the earliest Christians are sitting around praying and, and waiting for God to do something big. Jesus had said to those Christians, I will send the Helper, and He will help you, and you will do greater things than me. But that hasn't happened yet, and so they're sitting there and they're praying. And they realize in the midst of this prayer and and this worship and this time that they're spending together that they need somebody to step up and be a disciple. You see, Jesus, while he was alive on earth, had picked 12 disciples. They were his closest followers. They were his best friends. And they were the men who were going to preach the gospel to the world and and really start the the Christian church that that you are sitting in in today even. I mean, they started the church. But, But something had happened while Jesus was alive. A man named Judas you know the story, had betrayed Jesus and and the rest of the disciples and he had given Jesus over to be arrested for 30 pieces of silver. And so he was no longer one of the 12 disciples. And so the, the men here realized we need to replace him because Jesus said there would be 12 men and we would sit on the 12 thrones. And so we have to do something about this. So they have a choice to make. But this time the choice is between two men. Let's read that story. Acts 1, 21 through 25. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must be a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. So they seek God. And the next verse tells us that God gives them an answer. He says, I want it to be Matthias. Now look, this decision didn't have a wrong answer. Both of these guys had, had loved Jesus from the earliest time when Jesus started his ministry. Both of these men had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died and he came back to life and both of them had seen Jesus in that time that Jesus lived on earth after he had risen from the dead. Both of these men apparently are living extremely godly lives or they would not have been considered for the position of the new disciple. And so the disciples have to decide between two things that are really good, but yet they seek the advice of God, and God gives them perfect advice. Maybe you're not convinced by this, but but what is fascinating is that we also see the example of Jesus. You see, when the disciples asked God about this disciple, they were doing exactly what they had seen Jesus do. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is our hoopagraman. It's a Greek word that means writing underneath, and it's meant to describe A little kid sitting at a desk and his teacher comes and says, you need to learn how to write now. And instead of saying good luck with that A, they write an A and then put tracing paper over the top so that the student can trace over the A and learn how to write. The Bible tells us that Jesus is supposed to be that for us. That we are supposed to copy our lives after his life. And when the disciples ask God for advice about who to select as a disciple, they are quite literally following the advice of Jesus. Luke 6, 12 and 13 says, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the whole night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, 
who he also, whom he also designated as apostles. You see, Jesus, who we believe as Christians was God in human flesh, still sought the advice of his Father in heaven, God the Father. He said, look, I'm about to make a big decision. I need 12 guys to be the ones who start the Christian ministry, who are the early church. I need to know who you want me to pick. He prays all night long, and the next morning he wakes up and follows God's advice and chooses the 12 men who become the disciples. You see, first of all, we just have these examples of of people seeking out God's advice and and God giving to them. But second of all, we have the hoopagraman, the example of Jesus. And if we are going to live like Jesus, then we need to be people who seek the advice of God. But let me give you a little bit more proof. In Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now the context of this passage is about getting the things that we need to survive, food and clothing uh, specifically. But I think that the application applies to us. God wants to give us good gifts. I think that advice would be one of those gifts that he would be willing to give us. Let me just say this. It says here that if your father knows how to give you good gifts, then then God must too who created us, right? But some of you have not had good dads. I mean, we can, we can all attest to the fact that there are some pretty poor dads in the world. And so some of you are going to read this and go, well, my dad didn't know how to give good gifts. My dad never gave me a gift. My dad was a jerk. My dad disappeared from my life. And it would be easy for you to read Jesus' words and say, well, that doesn't make any sense because my dad didn't give good gifts, so how can I know that God wants to bestow his advice upon me? But here's the thing. Jesus means this with real fathers in mind, with real dads in mind, men who have done their jobs and who have been there for their children. To say that fathers don't give advice because your dad didn't give advice or good gifts to you is is like saying that cheetahs aren't fast because you saw a cheetah with a broken leg once. I mean, right? It, It just doesn't make sense to put the example and the analogy on everybody. I have a great dad. I've been blessed in that way. And I know this, that my dad gives me good gifts. He would give me everything if he could afford it. And one of the things that he has has blessed me with through the years is fantastic advice. He wants to give me advice because he loves me. If I call him up and say, hey, dad, should we spend the money on this? My dad's not going to go, nah, I don't care to offer that information to you. I'll just keep it to myself. He's going to go, hey, here's what I think. Take it for what it's worth. And so, when we look at the the analogy that Jesus uses of a dad giving good gifts, can't we believe in our hearts that that if my dad, who's just a human being, like you and like me, if he is going to give me advice, then then can't we we must agree that the person who created us also wants to give us advice. But you say, well, that's not good enough. I need more verses. Well, let me give you more verses that say virtually the same thing. Matthew 21, 22. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. 
whatever you ask for, I'm pretty certain that advice might fit in there, right? Uh, how about Mark 11:24? Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. John 14, 12 through 14. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And then 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is, my this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. I can't think that any of you would say, well, I don't think that God giving me advice is outside the will of God. I mean, it says if we ask according to His will, and I think there's nothing more inside the will of God than for us to say, hey God, what is your will? And so I'm pretty certain that through these scriptures, we can just say, yeah, God wants to give me advice. He wants to give me advice about where to work and what house to buy and who to marry. And He wants to give me advice about who I, who I should uh, date even and, and what I should do about that situation at work that's been hanging over my head or how I confront that family member. He wants to give you advice about those things. Let me just give you one more piece of evidence from the book of John. John 10, 1 through 5. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep, pin by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out when he has brought out all his own he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice but they will never follow a stranger in fact they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice there's a ton you could pull out of that five verses right there, but I just want you to focus on one. Jesus says, I bring them out. That's a reference to salvation. I bring them out. I, I, I offered my life to save them. And then he says, I lead them as their shepherd and they follow me. He's not just saying, look, I, I, I gave them a relationship with me. He's saying, look, I walk daily in front of them and, and teach them and guide them and give them advice so that they know what I want them to do. Now, the analogy might miss on you if you're like me, you don't know much about shepherds and you know nothing at all about sheep, but I have a dog. People that have been around here before know that I love my dog. He's the most beautiful dog in the world. Man, I could just look at him. Uh, we don't have children, and so there's my son um, right there. He's beautiful, minus that chunk of slobber, but uh, he is beautiful, and, and I, I don't know about sheep, but I know this. For no good reason, I love and care about my dog. And I lead him and I guide him. Me and Roy go on runs together, right? And I have Roy on a leash. And sometimes that needs to be the case because we run on busy roads. And, and so I, I can't have him just running next to me with no leash because he could dart out in the road. And so sometimes I take that leash and, and I hold it really tight and I keep him right next to me. And I make sure that we're going in the same direction. We're missing all the potholes. We're not getting hit by traffic and all of those things. But other times, me and Roy go to the dog park. That's the dog park, actually. And I let Roy off of that leash. And I let him go. And I let him run around, and he has freedom. And he knows he has freedom to do whatever he wants to do. But I still offer him advice. One time, the dog park, there was a group of dogs on a leash. 
four or five dogs. Not safe at a dog park. Don't ever put four or five dogs on a leash and take them to the dog park. It's a bad idea. But I knew it wasn't safe. I knew it wasn't the best decision for him. But, but Roy's free at the dog park. I mean, anything he does at that dog park is fine unless he runs away from it. And I say, hey, Roy, don't go over there. And he knows the difference between my... Roy, don't go over there. And my, Roy, don't go over there. And, and so I, I said, hey, Roy, don't go over there. He said, well, there's some action going on over there. I'm headed over there. And he got tangled up in, in, that, in those uh, leashes, and he got so scared. And, and he jumped away, and it just wasn't pretty. And, and there's situations like that where I see what's best for Roy, and I'm not commanding him. I'm not saying, look, if you don't do this, then you're no, no longer my dog, and I'm going to be mad at you, and you need to repent. I'm not saying any of those things, right? But I am trying to tell him, look, the best decision for you, the one that is safest and will result in your best, I want to offer you. Now, call me crazy, but if I care enough to lead this slobbery, beautiful animal for his own best interest, then doesn't the God of the universe care enough about his creation human beings, to lead and guide us to the best decisions. Wouldn't we all agree on that? And if I could just strengthen that further for you, John 10.10 says, it's just right after that passage, it says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Here's the thing about Jesus. We know from the Bible that Jesus came to this earth so that he could die for the sins, the wrongdoings of all people everywhere. Jesus came down here and lived on this earth with all of its decisions and difficulties. And he lived for 30 years, started a ministry, did that ministry for 30 years when people were persecuting him and yelling at him and trying to convince him that he wasn't the Son of God. And he lived through all of that. And then he died the worst death that the world has ever known. It was physically horrible. He was beaten and he was he was pierced and, and they put a crown of thorns in his head and they whipped him and he, he, he went up on a cross and was crucified there. But that death was also horrible because his father, whom he had sought advice from every day of his life, whom he said, I don't do anything without the will of the father, that same father had to turn his back on Jesus so that our sins could be paid for. Jesus gave his entire life for you. He loved you so much and wanted a relationship with you so much that he poured out everything he had, taking on hell, literally, in his body so that you didn't have to go there and could live in heaven forevermore. That's what Jesus did for you. He wants the absolute best for you. He doesn't just want eternal life. He wants the best for you. And he says, I've come to give life. And he did that through the cross. But I've come to give life abundantly. He wants the best for you. And and, and I just can't think that somebody who is willing to give their life for me is not willing to tell me what they think is the best decision on where to work and what house to buy and who to marry. And so this morning, I just want to leave you with that thought. If Jesus loved you enough to give his life for you, then he loves you enough to guide you and lead you in everyday decisions. He wants to do that. He is doing that. The question is, are you seeking it? 
And so this morning, as you walk out of here, what I, what I want you to know is that Jesus loved you enough to die for you. I want you to know that every single Sunday. But I also want you to know that Jesus loves you enough to guide your decisions. And so this week, instead of just saying, I'll do what seems easiest, I'll do what seems best to me, I'll do what other people are telling me to do, what I encourage for you is to say, hey God, what is it that you want me to do? Over the next three weeks, we'll answer these questions. I just want to repeat them again. Next week, we'll say, well, why aren't I hearing from God? I mean, Chad, I went home and I started to ask God, hey, what is it that you want me to do? And I haven't heard anything yet. And so we'll answer the question, why am I not hearing from God? And the week after that, we'll answer this question, how do I seek advice from God? And how does God give advice to us? Both of those questions. And on the final week, as I said earlier, we'll answer the question, how can we be sure that it's God? We don't want to do things in the name of God that are not really God's guidance, God's advice for our life. And so how can we be sure of that? But this morning, as we finish in in a couple of more songs, remember this. Jesus loved you enough to die the most brutal death that that the world has ever known. And he for sure loves you enough to offer you advice and guidance for the decisions that you make every single day. Will you pray with me? Lord, I, I ask that the people that sit in front of me, God, would believe that you want to guide their lives. That they would believe that you want to give them advice in everything, Lord. And some of the decisions, God, we just know, you know, what you want most of the time, God, with, with the small stuff. But, but other things, God, it's hard to know what you want us to do. And Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, God, that every person would know that you love us. And every person, God, would leave here with a newfound desire, uh, like my newfound desire, to, to genuinely seek what you want for me, God, in life's everyday decisions. I pray, God, that all of the people who are here, God, all the people who will listen to this online, I just ask that they would, this week, God, as they make decisions, they'd say, what is it that you want me to do, Lord? What advice do you have for me? God, I know that there's people in front of me right now that are trying to make very difficult decisions, God. I know that you have ordained and led, God, us to this study because I know, God, that people are wrestling with what you want them to do. God, there are some big issues that people are facing and and they want to know what you want. And so I pray, God, as we go through this study, that, Lord, you you would just reveal your word to us and you teach us and you would guide us even in this so that we, God, would be people who who don't just follow you by, by avoiding some sins, but we follow you with every aspect of our lives. God, that that we do everything for you, Lord, trusting and knowing that you will always lead us to what is best for us. Lord, we love you and we thank you for pouring out your life so that we could be saved, so that we could have a relationship with you, so that we could hear from you. And we ask these things because of that truth. Amen.